My name is Yitzchak Yat Shalom, and we're going to be studying Shemesh Begivon Dome. Check your boarding pass, make sure you're on the right flight. Um, we have a, uh, a ceremony that we engage in here that has become uh, more of a necessity than a ritual. Um, there are, we have the custom, of course, of having the you may even take place during the nine days. There are all sorts of people with different shitot about hearing music during the nine days. There are some people who won't listen to live music, some people won't listen to recorded music. There are people who are mockpeed on ringtones. So, out of sensitivity to those people, please turn your phones off. I have to tell you, I have been absolutely scandalized this week by the many symphonies that I've been hearing. All the noise in the hallway, I feel like I'm back in high school. Um, before beginning, I would just I'd like to make a special dedication, but I'd like to, like to make a comment about a dedication. And um, over the course of this year, we're going to be talking both micro but also macro about what it is we do here. We're here to study Torah together. And there are many opportunities where people study Torah where the intellectual challenge is muted and the emotional and spiritual result is the main goal. I think it's safe to say that that's not what we're doing here this week. We're engaging intellectually. We are hearing from some really outstanding, unbelievable scholars and then there's guys like me who get up to do an open mic. But it's something we always have to remember. That we're studying Torah in order to come closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We're studying Torah in order to connect ourselves with Toda'at Am Yisrael, with Toda'at Eretz Yisrael, with who we were, who we are, and who we aspire to be. It's often the case that at Shurim, we have a dedication in honor of somebody, often in memory of somebody. A number of years ago, of course, we all had the very sad honor of dedicating our shurim to our Rosh Yeshiva, our Yudamital Zatzal, who had just passed away. And one might think that, all right, once in a while I understand, but uh, on a regular basis? And my answer to that is, Ad Every shur should be dedicated. Every time that we study Torah, it should be dedicated to not only what it is we're studying, but to something beyond it. Because if somebody comes out of the Beit Midrash, the same person they were that they came in, they shouldn't have gone. Not just, it was a nothing, they shouldn't have gone. It's not me, it's Chazal. Torah has to change us. And sometimes by dedicating what we're studying to somebody whose memory is an inspiration that may have a positive impact on the consequences of that study for us. So it's a very bittersweet honor for me to dedicate this shiur to the memory of Ariella Ruth Bat Abraham Visara, a Bobby in our community who was not my grandmother, but more than a grandmother. I'm going to say one thing about her, because as she was in her last months of losing a battle to ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and I would bring my kids to her house to visit, and she would have them sing. got to the point where she couldn't even move her head. And we had to step right in front of her so she could see them. 
but she never stopped smiling. With all of her pain, she never talked about herself. She always asked about the kids. She remembered all the kids by name. We have a saying in English. If life gives you lemons, good, you make lemonade. This lady took hemlock and made champagne. And I mean that literally. And it's a very powerful thing to consider that no matter what your circumstances are, to always be thinking of the other, to be rejoicing over the life that you have and the breath that you take, and it's something we all need to take with us. During the last week that she was there, we came to visit, and a tree that had been in the front yard had fallen. It doesn't happen often. A tree falls by itself. I think most people in a circumstance like that would become very dour and see it as a siman. Her response was, I'll have to plant another one. I came to the house during Shiva and they had just planted a new tree. That's how we need to look at life and that's how we need to let Torah inspire us to make every moment count and realize the blessing in every moment. Yehizichra Baruch. Let's take a look at Sefer Yoshua. Sefer Yoshua is roughly broken into three sections. The section of Kibush Haaretz, section of Nachlat Haaretz, what we might call a Siyum. The conquest of the land, the division of the land, and then several chapters of conclusion. More accurately, I would have to add a fourth section in, which is the introductory sections on the other side of the Yardin and the crossing. It also depends where you're going to put Melchemet Yericho and Melchemet Ta'ai. There's different ways that it can be parsed. Chapter 10, Perak Yod, is the beginning of the section of the war Neto, without other considerations of ambushes and of second attempts and of creating Tachanun and of six times around the city and a seventh time. This is straight up Melchama. Melchama happens in an interesting way. Because in Perak Tet, as I'm sure you're all aware, a nation living among us masqueraded as outsiders and wrote basically a vassal treaty with us in which they could remain there and we would not harm them and we would have to actually have mutual aid. This, for the local nations who were quite scared of our entrance into the land, was not good news. And so they made a coalition, something that is not unheard of, the coalition of the city-states. And five of the city-states gathered together, and in order to do what has to be done in war, which is to determine the place and time of the battle. You want the battle to be on your terms, both place and time. Instead of attacking us, which would have been a suicide mission, they attacked our new allies, the Givonim. Let's take a look at the first 11 psukim of the parak to get the background. So there's two things there. There's the victories and then there's the surrender of Givon. They were very scared. 
Givon is a very big city. Evidently, the Givonites were very strong and powerful people, and nonetheless, they surrendered to us, even though they were a big and powerful city. Just one comment about that. What kind of name is Adonit Tzedek? Right. In other words, that Yerushalayim always had a tradition of somehow being associated with Tzedek, so the kings got title names. Title name might be Malki Tzedek, might be Adonit Tzedek, and now you will, of course, understand the very pass- pa- painful line that we'll hear in two days, Tzedek Yalinba, the Atamaratzchim. We have a lot of fun with these names. I don't know anybody who's named the kid Hoham. Somebody, somebody volunteering? <laughs> okay. So there's a call to arms of these five kings together. The king of Yerushalayim summoned them. So the whole army. Now, important to note that in Tanakh, especially in the military chapters, the Hainu in Shmuel, especially Shmuel Aleph, and in Shoftim, Lachanot Al means, literally, what does it mean? What's Lachanot? You're going to say the park. To, to camp, to set up a camp. But Lachanot Al means, to, be, to not necessarily besiege, but to camp in a way that's clearly threatening and preparing for war against. So they sent a message. Alei here, by the way, is a literary thing because we're in Gilgal and they are up in in Givon. So it's a it's a climb to get there. So they say, come up and help us. Right? They're attacking us. So they came up with all of It's unclear whether that's the entire army. Reference perhaps to the two and a half Shvatim who have to lead. In any case, a massive army comes up. And now, on the way or before. A critical thing, and it's a general statement about Sefer Yoshua. What is Yoshua's greatest concern throughout his career? What? Nope. I mean, it could be. I don't know. Yeshua's greatest concern, evidently, from the Tanakh is shoes. Shoes. No, shoes. Can he fit into Moshe's shoes? Can I be as great as Moshe Rabbeinu? It's a tough act to follow. And so HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives him sign after sign after sign after sign that yes, you are Ke'avdiki Moshe. Think about this just as a side point. How many rocks do you know of in Sefer Yoshua? What rocks do you know of in Sefer Yoshua? Twelve. And another twelve. And then the implements for Brit Milah. And then the whole walls of Yericho coming down. And then the Mizbach of Anim Yoshua builds. There's no end of rocks. We're going to see the most important rocks coming up right now. By the way, when's the first time we ever hear of Yoshua? Ever. Right? Doing what? Go war against Amalek. Where's Moshe sitting at the time? On a rock. Okay, important to note that there's a lot of Moshe connection that comes in. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu says it to him in Parak Aleph. Critical to note, when Moshe actually went to war against Sichon and Og, what is the phrase that HaKadosh Baruch Hu told him? 
Al tiramem, and I'm trying to tell it at Sichon Riyadecha. Two phrases. Don't be afraid of them. I'm going to give them into your hand. It's consistently the theme given to Yoshua also. Same wording. Make that connection. Okay. Again, the promise that we hear in Sefer Dvarim. It's a surprise attack. So it's about 22 kilometers. What's that in miles? About 15 miles? A uh, hike uphill at night in stealth. The time of day is going to be critical for our main point. So Hashem smites them with a big smite, big smack. And unclear what, what the substance of that is yet. We'll see. So, Yoshua chases them, we're going to get the details in a minute, west. Chases them west to Malay Beit Choron, and then they cross the 443, the cops come out and stop traffic, and they start going south towards the caves in the direction of Lachish. Thank you. Okay. They're a little stuck at box, you have to put something in. Alright. Vahibin Osam Israel. So they're on their way down. So we just don't know what the first smite, smite, smiting was. That's the verb, the noun for it. But the first smack was, it could be that it's this, it could be that it's something else, and then this is the next detail that we get. Now, by the way, these are not rocks, as we'll find out. But the text calls them rocks, because again, making that connection with rocks and Yeshua and Moshe. And now we find out that they are deadly hailstones. So B'nai Israel attacked them by the sword, chased them, and as they're being chased, HaKadosh Baruch Hu pipes in with a lot of hailstones, and they're wiped out. What's going to happen later in the parak is not our concern today. But, spoiler alert, in case you're right in the middle of Yoshua Yod and you don't want to be surprised, close your ears for a second, but we're going to win this war. You knew that. Okay. Here's the part that we're looking at. Az Yudabel Yoshua Adonai. When is Az? After all this happened? Unclear. We will almost have to say that this is some earlier point. Because to say that the battle is all over and then Yoshua invokes this is a lot. Beyond Tate Adonai Tamorid Frebene Israel. On the day that Hashem handed the Kananim over to Bnei Yisrael, the Emorim, Vayomer la'inei Yisrael. So he gets up and publicly says this. So it sounds like it's not in the middle of a war, because when war is going on, you don't assemble the people to have some sort of dramatic statement. You're fighting. Shemesh dom ve'emek ayalon. One little piece of a bit about Hebrew poetry, which we'll be focusing on in a different way later on, but um, just a translation. Shemesh begivon dom. What does that mean? The sun stop. It's a command. Dom. Stop Shemesh in Givon. Viareach Ayalon. And the moon over the valley of Ayalon. What should the moon do? Why didn't it say that? Shemesh Givon Dom. Viareach Ayalon Dom. Okay, so what? Good, good. Okay, so, I mean, you're right, but why doesn't it say, V'yarech ben makayon atzor, if you want to be a little, have some variety? <laughs> the answer is that biblical poetry is not about rhyming, it's about meter. 
Point out, biblical poetry is not about rhyming. The people at Hallmark are concerned with finding something that rhymes with orange. <laughs> not our concern. In Tanakh, poetry is about meter, about having a balanced meter on both sides of the pasuk. Shemesh begivon dom That's beautiful. What do I do with the word dom? I do something we call forward gapping, and I read the word dom as assumed in the next half. So it reads as shemesh begivon dom. What it means is shemesh begivon dom dom. You too. But for purposes of poetry, we leave it out. Okay. I'm going to stop right now and ask the question: What time of day is this? Right. Okay, a, just a little bit of uh, naked eye astronomy. Has to be sunset, except that you've got the moon in the west and the sun in the east. Because Givon is east of Ayalon. So by the way, what time of day must it be if the moon and the sun are both in the sky? Around the beginning of beginning of the day, around the horizon event, right? Because you can't have the sun at midday with the moon just never visible in the sky. The moon doesn't rise during that time. Around what? Right, sunset or sunrise. Right, and at one of the one of the ends of the day, but not in the middle. Now, if the sun is in the east, that means it's got to be the beginning of the day. Parenthetically. What would be the reason for stopping the sun if that's what happens here? And I'm not going to even touch the astrophysics problem of this. That's probably in some other you may Um What? What? Exactly. So Samir and Farshim say the point is that they're going to be, we're going to be chasing them to the west. Which means if they want to turn around and fight us, they're going to be looking right into the sun, and it's a great strategy. It's beautiful. Shemesh begivon dom ve'yarech ve'yamekayalon. I love it. And if we stop there, you're good, except we've got one problem, is when did Yeshua say this? Did Yeshua stop everything, time out, while they're chasing them, hold the barad, not yet, guys, and make this declaration that they call Yisrael? It's hard to understand what the context, like, what's the point? Yeah. I know, thank you. Excellent. So let's, let's jump ahead, because you insisted that we move ahead. Beautiful. Everybody did what they're supposed to. So before we get to your problem, I got another problem. Until the point where the nation was able to exact vengeance from its enemy. What does vengeance mean? What's the context of vengeance? Against whom do you wreak vengeance? Somebody who has wronged you. I got a problem here. These are people we haven't met yet. Oh, they've threatened our treaty allies who we don't like very much and who lied to us. Yegivonim. But what kind of nekama is there here? So I get the Shemesh until I see the contradiction. I get the Shemesh in Yerech with you. I don't get the Yikom Goyevav. And then, what's your name? I'm sorry. Don? As Don points out, he peeked ahead. First of all, before we get to that, we have to see what that means. That there is a reference to this event in Sefer Hayashar. So, of course, you look at the Ibn Ezra and he'll tell you there was a book called Sefer Hayashar that was probably lost along with Sefer Melchamot Hashem and Sefer Devarim Machai Yisrael, etc. 
that are all mentioned in Tanakh and re- referred to in Tanakh. We don't have, they're not extant anymore. Chazal have a different take on it, that Sefer Yashar is a reference to one of different books of Tanakh earlier, which would mean one of the Chumashim. But then we get this line that really is a problem. Vayamor Hashemesh Bachatzi Hashemayim. What's Chatzi Hashemayim mean? Noon. V'lo atzlavo ki yom tamim. It did not rush to come like it does on a normal day. A normal day, the sun makes its normal progression. Here the sun seemed to slow down. Where? At high noon. Gary Cooper. So where is the sun? Very strange. Let's finish this piece and we'll summarize the questions. There never was before nor since. Now since, of course, whenever you read that in Sefer Yeshua as an example, it means till the time that Sefer Yeshua was completed and never before in history was there a time that God attended or heeded the commands of a person. Who's the person? Yeshua. Because God is fighting for Israel. Now, if the only question I had was about that last pasuk, I would, I would retire and let us have an early lunch. Say that HaKadosh Baruch Hu was more attend- attentive to Yoshua than anybody else in history. I'm a little scandalized by it, just a teeny bit. I have a feeling Rambam would be very, very scandalized by it. To think that he would come to the ankles of Moshe Rabbeinu, much less overtake him. In his closeness to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, is something difficult. Now, the end of the Pasuk may save us by saying it's not because of who the person was, because of the context. HaKadosh Baruch was fighting for Yisrael, so he attended to what Yoshua wanted. If it was somebody else, he would have done it anyways. Could be. But Lishmoa Adonai Bekol Ish puts the emphasis on the Ish also. I'm a little bothered by that. But I'll tell you what I'm very bothered by. I'm very bothered by where the sun is. Is it at high noon, or is it at the horizon? I'm somewhat bothered by this notion of nikama here, although, again, if that was the only problem, we could play with it a little bit. So in order to solve these, I'd like to take a look at some more general, general issues. If you take a look, it's preferable to look at this in the Tanakh. If you open up Shmuel Aleph, Perak Yodchet, To give you the background, Shaul has been standing there with his army for, according to the text, 40 days. With his, uh, as we say, his tail between his legs. While Goliath has come out and made his ferocious <laughs> statements, whether 40 days means 40 days, just means a long time, doesn't matter, it's quite embarrassing. And then this punk, this kid, in a little shepherd's skirt, comes out, and slingshots Goliath to death. It's a great moment for David. It's a great moment for us. It's not Shaul's best, best moment. <laughs> so after Goliath is killed, the army chases them, and they chase them all the way west to Sharia Kron. And on the way back, they are greeted, as is typical in Tanakh, by young women coming out and dancing in a circle dance and singing, and playing an instrument called a tof, which is something like a tambourine. It's a percussive instrument with some sort of tone. Where do we find this happening other times in Tanakh? Miriam. Good. Okay. Famous case, of course, is Bat Yiftach, which is strange because how can one girl dance in a circle dance? I don't know. Go figure out what Machol is. But 
The girls come out to dance. Now listen to what they say. It's a very strange thing. Now this is not at all connected to Shemesh Begimon Dom, except it's extremely connected to the solution. David's on his way back from Plishti here it doesn't just mean Goliath, it also means from smiting the, the Philistines. All the cities, it says all the cities, which means as they're coming through Lod, all the women of Lod come out, and they're coming Ramla, and then they cross Modi'in, and then Modi'in, and Ramal Modi'in comes out. It's just all the way back. All the women come out, and what do they do in their circle dances? Betupim besimcha uve shalishim. Shalishim actually may be exactly what they sound like, which is triangles. Um, the Greek has it kimbalos, so symbols. means some sort of call and response. What do they say? <clears throat> How many of you have ever done Israeli dancing? So the last words of this are not ben yishai chayvekayam. That's in the song, okay? Which is hikash shaul ba'alafav v'david v'rivotav. Right? Shaul has smote with his thousands and David has smote with his ten of thousands. Now, if you're Shaul and you hear this song, what should your reaction be? I don't know about you. My reaction is going to be, I'm still in the song. <laughs> they didn't forget my name. Matter of fact, I even come out looking good in the song because I'm first and I only need a thousand guys to do some killing and the runt needs ten thousand. This could easily be interpreted as a great praise for Shaul. Now, granted, Shaul is at the beginning of a, I'll be very nice and call it, history of melancholia. The clinicians among us would probably call it something much worse, but but he's the beginning of it. He's not yet really full-out paranoid. What does he do? He's extremely angry. This is very bad in his eyes. Strange phrase. They gave David the ten of thousands and they gave me the thousands, as if there's like a specific thousand he was given. It's a very odd phrase. And all that's left is for him to become king. I mean, that's just nuts. There's just no way to connect this song to David becoming king. And there's no reason to automatically interpret the alafim or vavot in such a negative way and saying this like they've given David the alafim the, and, and, and the vavot to me the alafim. It's logical if he's paranoid. I, I would agree with you. It's unclear really at what point in Shaul's uh, degeneration, because you can't call it much more than that, uh, this has happened. But even at later points, Shaul seems to be lucid with some jukim, like, you know, he, he thinks that he's out to kill him, but to, to hear this song of celebration, immediately interpret it in the worst possible way, and then add something that's irrelevant to the song, is even beyond what he's done in his other moments. It's a little strange. Yes, Dr. Uh, it's not totally irrational. Go ahead. Okay, well, I agree with you. It's not totally deranged. Okay, but remember, every good king has a good general, and if the good general is praised, everything that's good for the king, which is an argument Yonatan uses later for to save David. 
Yeah, okay. But but that was a very different setting. That wasn't where the son had helped his father in battle and they're being praised together. That was a very different thing. I agree with you. And if David is standing and said, yeah, boy, then I could get it. But this, what, what, what does that have to do with the song? i got a different question about the song. I'll have to ask you to hold the questions for a couple minutes. I have a different question about the song. How do the girls know this song? I mean, there isn't a Twitter feed. It's not like, you know, in love, they get the message, oh, in Giva Time, they're singing this song. Let's quickly learn it, girls. There's no way for them to do this. And Facebook. Facebook. Oh, very good. Like. Okay, I like the read. There's no way to... I'm sorry, some of you may not. Get that. Um, there's no way to really understand how they could have this song right there. And the same Nusach. And by the way, this Nusach becomes so famous, it's on Casey Kasem's Top 40. Because later on, in two other places, in Parachavalot and Parachavtet, we hear about, this is the David, when he runs away to Achish. Say, oh yeah, that's David! Remember the song? So it's a famous song! How to get out there? Yeah, but this is a little too short for word gets around. I agree with you, later on, that's what happened. Very strange. So I'd like to talk about something of much more general nature right now that really speaks to a lot of what, what is we do here. What is we do here during the May Yun? What it is that Michal Herzog has been doing here for now 30 plus years? And what it, what it is we're doing out in the world of teaching Tanakh and studying Tanakh? I'm going to give a false dichotomy now. I'll admit it from the beginning. There is a narrow view and a broad view. The reason that's a false dichotomy is because there is narrower and broader and there's all sorts of shades. When you study a parashah in Tanakh, you can take an extremely narrow view, which is to look at the parashah without any context whatsoever. And look at the psukim. And the psukim say a particular thing, and that's what that particular thing is. You do your best to try to understand what the words are, Context is irrelevant. External context doesn't exist. Zitzim Leibman, Amoshav Bachayim, the the social context and the anthropological context is absolutely irrelevant. Where do we find this use of Tanakh? In Midrash. Think about how often Midrashim take Psukim, take them out of their context, even willfully slightly manipulate what the word means, because they can do it, in order to make a particular point. Um, the beginning of Masachat Tanit. Oh, a bad example. In the beginning of Masachat Tanit. Hamakarev amayim aliyotav and v'yatslut yadayim yimach hamakarev. It reads the words as being the same word. Because if you take a look at the Dikduk, you'll see it's not the same word. In one case, it's a verb, the one who causes things to happen. In the other case, it's a roof. Or... Like Tikra. For Midrashic purposes, it's a totally legitimate thing to do. In our Shiur Daf Yomi this morning, here in Alon Shvut, we saw how Rabbi Meir was willing to parse the Pasuk all sorts of different ways. Ways that were totally wrong for the meaning. In order to get to the halachic point. All of it's possible. Just move the Etnachta around. It's okay. You can't see it. We don't have one yet. 
<laughs> it's a totally legitimate use in Midrash. The more that we broaden our view of the text, which means to get, first of all, the textual context. What's happening in this context itself? If we were to start with Shemesh B'Givon Dom without the war, and without the attack on Givon, it'd be hard to make sense of it. And then there's all sorts of other contexts. Rambam, in this third section of Moran Vuchim, spends significant energy on demonstrating, from the information that he had, that many of the chukim that we have, specifically in Sefer Vayikra and Tvarim, are responses to Canaanite practices. That the Torah specifically forbade cooking a kid in its mother's milk because that was a fertility practice of the Canaanim. And all sorts of other stuff. Shatnez and Begid all of that the Rambam puts into that context. Besides, of course, the very famous Rambam's take on Korbanot. Homosexuality. Possibly. I don't know if the Rambam mentions that. That is looking at the broader historic context against which the Torah was given. But there's all sorts of other ways in which this happens. When we're studying the Sipor Bamikram, we're studying a narrative, we want to understand why it is that there is a caravan coming through the Gilad that Yosef's brothers see. And somehow Yosef ends up on the caravan. They sold him, he got sold by the Midianim, Machloket. And then we study, start, just start, start studying the ancient trade routes and understand not only why they were coming there, but where Yosef's brothers must have been in order for them to see them. Rav Yobin Nun, a number of years ago, wrote a fascinating article on the opening line of Parshat B'Shalach. B'Shalach derach eretz plishtim etc. Why was that? Well, if you look at Egyptian texts and Near Eastern texts, you will understand that Eretz Canaan, or Eretz HaPlishtim, was under Egyptian hegemony at the time. Which means that if they went up the coast road, what we call Derech Eretz Plishtim, they would simply be saluted by the customs officials because they had all their paperwork, and they'd leave, which means they would continue to be vassals and subjects of Egypt. Now, without that piece of external information, the text makes less sense. It makes more sense this way, it comes alive. One of the things that I've always taught and in my first volume, it's the first chapter of the, of the book, is the only way to really understand a narrative is to get into the narrative. Don't just read about Yosef and his brothers. Get into the pit. And what are you hearing? Be Yehuda. What is it you're seeing? Be Yaakov. What do you know? That, of course, formed the nucleus of the first article ever published in Megadim, which is Rabbi Nun's article about Yosef and his brothers, and what the misunderstanding was. And it caused reverberations that still shake in many worlds, because it was a revolutionary approach. It was really a question of just walking into the story, looking around, and what is it you see? I'll give you an example of how the text does this for us. You're reading Megillat Root, not long ago, and you come towards the end of Root, and Boaz is negotiating with Mr. What's-His-Name. His name is, and somebody's going to say Tov. His name is 
because he, because he actually had a name. Just to point out, it's important to note the texts do get edited. So when Boaz said ploni almoni, he didn't say ploni almoni. He probably said Chaim Yanko, because we know that everybody in Tanakh had Yiddish names. But he probably said Zetzchavek also. But the text blots his name out. It censors his name. It turns his name into Ploni Almoni. Unlike the other two places in Tanakh where Ploni Almoni show up, where the person just is saying some sort of a name, because not real, here's a real guy. So why is his name blotted out? What would he, what would he refuse, what did he refuse to do? He refused to keep alive Elimelech's name. Okay, okay. Now, when he's negotiating with Ploni Almoni, what's his name? <clears throat> Ploni Almoni finally, when Boaz throws in the hook that you'll have to marry Ruth also, it's unclear why Pony went for it and didn't just say, I'll take the field, you take root. That's a whole piece by itself. The Goel says, okay, you take it. Well, now we have to have a transaction. So what does one of them do? We don't know who. Machlok at Rabin Levi. One of them takes off somebody's shoe and gives it to the other guy. Whose shoe? Who takes it off? Unclear. Good. But, I'm reading the text and I got no idea what's going on. One guy says, okay, I'll let you buy it. Good. Here's a shoe. I scratch my head and what's going on? So what does the text add in as an interpolation? In the old days, by the way, which old days? The old days when Boaz was around. How did they used to do things? They would make a transaction by handing a shoe. When was that line written? When was that pasuk written? When was that pasuk written? I'm asked by whom? When? I can't give you a year, but I can tell you this much. It was at a time in which they no longer used shoes. Because otherwise the reader doesn't need that. It has to be at a time when not only they don't use shoes anymore, but for the most part, people have forgotten about the use of the shoe. It's put in there to say, you know that next line you're going to see? It's there in order to explain to you the Moshav Bachayim. So you can understand the text. I'll give you another example. In Shmuel Aleph. Shmuel is out there looking for his donkeys. Who's he with? He's got shovels with his kid. Again, a non-named kid. He's out there, <coughs> and the kid... Wants to keep looking, Shoal wants to go home. The kid says, hey, there's a Isha Elohim here. They're passing by Ramah. And Shoal says, we've got nothing to give him. He says, yeah, I found some money. Okay, we'll go. What What do they, when they get to the city, who do they ask for? What's a Roeh? A seer. But you're asking for a Navi. A Navi's not a seer. So the text throws in a pasuk per, pasuk perktat pasuk tet. When a person will go to see God, let's go to see the roeh. We call a navi. They used to call a roeh. Why is that pasuk in there? So when you're reading the text, you'll understand what's going on. He's going. Let's go find a navi. It's okay. Here, where's the roeh? Same thing. It's just what they used to call it. So, by the way, that means that pasuk was written when? At a time when we no longer called it the Roet. And the reader has to understand what's going on, or the listener has to understand what's going on. Why is he saying, let's go to the Roet? Okay. So, the text itself 
often does this. As an example, in um, Shiur, I heard just a couple days ago, uh, Rav Samet quoted uh, a book written by Professor Amar about the five different kinds of grains. And a whole piece on the significance of bread in the Egyptian empire. I didn't know about this. Significance of lachem in the Egyptian empire. Turns out it played a very significant role. And then when you go back to Parshat Vayigash and read about the negotiations between Yosef and the Egyptians, and you read about the unwillingness of the Egyptians, suddenly everything takes on a whole new hue. Now that's a big part of what this place and these Yimei are about and what goes on here all the time. It's about broadening our understanding and therefore deepening our understanding of Tanakh by getting a greater sense of all the different things that are going on in the real world at the time that the Tanakh is speaking to, is addressing, is reflecting, is telling us about. Looks like this is shutting down on me and we're going to go to Torah Shavu'al We're allowed to do it here. It's okay. The reason I'm mentioning that is because we have numerous examples in Tanakh of where other things going on in the world float in. Let me give you an example. David encounters Shaul. One of the encounters that they have while David is running. And David says that he's not going to attack Shaul himself. Typically he would say, How could you smite the anointed of God and be cleansed? Can't happen. But in this particular context, David says, As the ancient parable goes, Unclear if the last four words are part of the mashal, but clearly there was a mashal, which means out there in the world there was a saying people had, which was, Only evil people do evil. So if I'm not going to kill you. I'll let God kill you. Uh, you're Dale Kong. It means that David is aware, like anybody else would be, of common sayings out there in the world, and is utilizing it, as any of us would, in a particular context. Now there the Tanakh is pointing directly to it and saying there is a mashal out there. Sometimes the mashal seems to be something created in the text itself. Shaul comes back from his search for the donkeys, and he has the three signs, and the final sign is, of course, that he's going to join the Lahakata Nevi'im in his own city, who are coming down from the Mama, singing and dancing. He's going to be caught up in the Nevuah. And he comes back, and it happens. All the signs happen to him, at Kevr Rachel, and on the way to Beitel, and, and it's in his town. Beginning of Perak Yod of Shmuel Aleph. And what does everybody standing around say? Hagam Sha'ul Nevi'im? Okay, that's cute. But then the text tells us, This is a story that we refer to as an etiological story. It's a story that's giving us the background of a practice. I'll give you an example of this. Why is a particular town about 25, 30 miles north of here, 20 miles north of here, called Beit El? Why is it called Beit El? We all know it is Luz. We all know the people who come from there are. Come on, losers, help me out. Okay. <laughs> Why is it called Beit El? We have a story. What's the story? Yaakov went to sleep. 
Why don't we eat the sinew? We have a story. Just the background. So for names, for names of people, for people, why people's names get changed, why is Gidon called Yerubal? Because of the way that his father defended him and saved him from the townspeople. Shoftim Vat. For practices, we're giving a, ba- a background story of why we do certain things or why certain things are called the way they are. Okay, I tell them, Mashal Yisrael HaGam means today, when we want to say some guy has reached a position we never thought he'd get to. The guy who was most likely not to in your high school yearbook is on the cover of Forbes without a mugshot. Yes, yes. What do people say? Hagam in other words, it's a way of saying, how could this guy reach such a level? Now you go know the story. You know what the story is? Shaul is a regular guy. He goes off looking for donkeys. Comes back. He's a Navi. Who would have thought? And it's repeated in Parakutet. So we have Mishalim that are created on the spot. We certainly have templates that exist in Tanakh. We have it on your, on your handout. It sounds much louder than it is. We have templates that are created in Tanakh where there is a particular kind of phrase that gets repeated. You have a famous example, of course, at the beginning of Amos. Parenthetically, it's important to note that the first word in Pasuk Bet, Vayomar, means that, not that Amos said this once, but this is Amos' regular trope. And then a particular sin. We have all sorts of ways in which patterns get created and patterns get repeated. Whether it's a mashal ha'am that gets utilized, or the pattern created in the text that then the text will reutilize, or a particular navi will utilize. Hineyamim ba'im, for instance, a popular thing in Amosin and Yumiao. Particular kind of trope. But sometimes, and I have a few examples here on the page, sometimes it seems that we encounter perhaps fragments of songs that were out there that have somehow made their way into the text without the original template. See, Agam Sholbanavim, we're getting the original. In the case of a Mashal Kadmoni, we're told there is a Mashal out there. And David is just repeating it. Sometimes we get little echoes that there may be a phrase out there, a song out there, a rhyme out there that's being used by a character in Tanakh and we're not given the original. I'll give you an example. Take a look on the page. Take a look on the, uh, the top of the second page. Unfortunately, the way the print came out, the important words are blocked out. Um, it kind of looks like the Nixon tapes. <laughs> okay. See how old you are. Good. All right. All the people laughing. Going, I'm not that old. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Go ahead. <laughs> so Yomar says, Adam imrati, and the rest of it. That's something very, very clever going on here, because Ada and Sila, with the names of Lemach's wives, also have a similar kind of meaning. Lahaid, what's Lahaid? Yeah, but it actually in Akkadian it has a meaning which is much closer to warn, warning you. And Silah is the tzatzel, like Tetzilah Nashteo's knob, somebody's going to hear something very bad. So there's like a saying about, I'm, you're, I'm a warning, I'm giving you bad news. 
But notice the pattern that he uses. Adavet Shman Koli, and Lamach, which is Adavet It's a beautiful parallel. And then you look in Yeshayahu and you find Nashim Sha'ananot, Kom Nashman Koli, Banot Potchot Imrati. Now there's one possibility which is, one I don't like, which is that Yeshayahu decided to riff off of Lemech's poem. Why would anybody want to use Lemech's poem? I mean, it's nice, but it's Lamech. This is Yishayahu Now, if you're from a different kind of school, you'll say, well, Lamech is riffing off of Yishayahu, and then, of course, you got a time travel problem, which is what that school has. There's another third possibility here, which is that saying somebody's name, Shmana Koli, and then having another version of their name, Hazen Emrati, was a common style of getting people's attention. An ancient common style. And we hear the echoes of it when Lamech warns his wives. But it's a common piece out there. Now, I can't prove this. Because I can't find anywhere, haven't yet found, in external texts, anything of this particular sort, with this particular kind of words. This is a theory. And I will admit, from the the get-go, it's a theory that's not yet been supported by evidence. I think you'll find it attractive nonetheless. And then Yeshayahu was simply using the same pattern. How will this help us? It's going to help us solve Shaul and David. And from there we're going to go back to Shemesh Begivondom. Let's look back at the passage about Shaul and David. Rahim Bavoram, you have it in front of you on the page. Beshuv David Nakot Taplishti, Vatetsan Anashim, Mikol Arei Israel, Ashivam Cholot. And the first question we asked was, how do they all know this song? So you got to assume that it's some sort of a common victory song. It's a common victory song. Yeah, what about the next town? That's the problem. If it was one town, then I would say, not only you're right, you're 100% right, because Vata'anena. Because vata'anana may mean call and response. It may mean. Not necessarily, because vi'anita vi'amarta, but it may mean call and response. But when it's all the cities, you're going to have to have runners going out there quickly. Girls, let's get together and have show plays wait out town for five minutes. We're not ready for you. Unlikely. It seems to be that this is a common victory song that's sung. And how does the song go? Hika ex ba'alafav v'y b'rivotav. That's the song. By the way, Elef and Revava, common pair. You have it throughout Tanakh. You pull Elef and Revava, I mean, Revot, Alfei Yisrael. Elef and Revot, all over the place. So it's a common song. And what's the song? Hika blank ba'alafav, u blank, Revotav. Question is, who goes in the blanks? How does the song go? So, we'll really see how old you are. You would have said, He come MacArthur Balafav Eisenhower Rivotav. 52. 53. In other words, how would the song go? You would mention the Sartsava and then the Melach. Now, what happens? Shaul hears this. He's not saying, oh, wow, at least I'm in the song. They didn't forget my name. 
This song is a direct threat to him. Because what does it mean? He got the wrong slot. And please take a look at the words and now you'll see it. And this is without them saying, Ben He's very angry. By the way, he's right to be angry here. Vayomer, not nu le David rivavot. Listen to his words carefully. Velina nu ha alafim. What does that mean? They gave me the alafim slot. That's the slot for the second guy. It's like I'm David's underling. All that's left is for him to become king. That's exactly what's happening. The next step is for him to become king. Shaul is 100% right here. He's reading this correctly. Because what we have here is an older song. Which is why the girls all know it. How does the word so quickly pass that we're going to put David into the second position? Unclear. Maybe it was just obvious from the victory. Twitter feed they didn't have, I know. But somehow that's how it plays out. Yeah, that's a question here. I just thirsty. That's all. Well, likrat doesn't necessarily mean to greet. It could be like towards, but you're right. It's, it's, he is the big guy, correct. But the song carries with it the seeds of. Yeah, so it would, you know, it would have worked except that then Shaul should have had her head. You know, whoever said Shaul first, you know, right? So it, it sounds like it was just a popular movement. Which is the Vatanana becomes problematic because who's calling and responding? Unless it's just such a popular movement that everybody's caught on, and his sense is that they've all granted David the position of king. Well, then, then the question becomes more strange. Like, right. if the women called out right, then why did everybody else change it? Right. So it's, I agree. There's certainly a question mark here, but I think the question mark is much smaller now with this suggestion. So let's go back to Shemesh B'Givon Dom. We mentioned four problems. If it was a different season, I would make it four questions, but not appropriate. First problem is, where's the sun? At the horizon or up on top? Second problem is, what's this Nekama? Third problem is, what's this mention of Sefer Yashar in here? Why is it mentioned here? Say, I understand why you have the mention of Sefer Melchamot Hashem in Parshat Chukat. So mentioning, you know, if you want to look about more about these wars, you can look at Sefer Melchamot Hashem, or else it's saying this is a subunit called Sefer Melchamot Hashem. But nobody's suggestion, suggesting that this piece of Yoshua has a name called Sefer Yashar. There's nothing that recommends that. So is it telling you if you want to read about it, you can read about it in Sefer Yashar? Well, you're reading about it here. And Haloi Yichtuva doesn't mean it's written about it. It means, isn't it written about? Isn't it already there in Sefer Yashar? And of course, the last problem was, probably the weakest of the problems was, why is God attending more to Yoshua than to anybody else in history? So I'd like to suggest with all of this background, 
that what we have in front of us is an older song. A song that predates Yoshua, or shall we say predates this moment. A song that Yoshua knew well. And a song that Yoshua deliberately utilized. And mentioned that it is an event that exists elsewhere. You're nodding your head, so what's the event? Beautiful. Perfect. Excellent. Let's take a look. I'd like to suggest that the original song was Shemesh Beblank Dom Viareach Blank, and it might have gone Shemesh Besinai Dom Viareach Berefidim. Where do I see that? We'll take a look back on the first page. Uh, take, take it back, I'm sorry. On the, um, on the, on the second page, source 16. In the war against Amalek, Moshe Rabbeinu, in the first moment that we meet Yoshua, and Yoshua is on the battlefield, and Moshe is up on the mountain, Moshe holds his hands up, whether it's tefillah, whether it's Kozman Shisrael, Mistaklim, Klapimal, Mishnan, Rosh Hashanah, whatever it is, that's ensuring the victory. We would read as Pshat, meaning that he held him up to the end of the day. Please take a look at the Midrash in Eliyahu Rabbah. Yom liyom yabia Omer. Pasuk you know from Tilim Yotet. Matzivan Shosteyamim Halalu. What's Yom Liyom? Which two days talk? So typically, poetically, it just means every day talks about how the greatness of God. It's referring to the great day of Moshe, at which he told Yoshua about his great day. That's what Hashem promised Yoshua. I'm going to put your fear over the people so that the people, as they feared Moshe, will fear you. Who's going to tell everybody that, you, that uh, these people are great? The sun stood still for Moshe. Where do you find such a thing? Important to note in Chazal, when you have a quote and the, the, the Gomer is added in, almost always it's the Rest, that's the important part. And they assume you know, because we all know Tanakh Balpeh, of course. What it means now is that Moshe held his hands up and held the sun up. Held the sun up. By the way, if he's holding the sun up just before sunset, so that means it's at the horizon. And he's stopping all of the heavenly bodies, the moon and the sun. So where do we find that Moshe told Yoshua about his coming day? Where's that? So take a look again in um, verse in passage 16. After the war, Moshe told Yoshua. What is it you're supposed to tell Yoshua? 
אמר לו, יהי רצון שתעמוד לך חמה כדרך שעמדה לי. יהי רצון that the sun should stand still for you as it stood for me. חן מצינו שעמדה לו חמה למו יהושע, where do we find that the sun stood still for יהושע? שעשו שמו חמה עצרו ובים שמש גבעון דום. Now notice that the Midrash quotes both parts. And I believe the Midrash here is telling us that this Midrash is not... This Midrash is actually anchored in, anchored in Pshutosh Mikra. But it's not starting in B'Shalach, it's a Midrash starting in Yehoshua. It's taking a look and saying, wait a second. Yehoshua goes to war and stops the sun, but it's unclear where the sun is. There's a mention of Nikama here. There's a mention of being written about in some other book. And then there's Lo The Midrash I believe is picking up on this saying, what we have here is another song. A song that was originally sung by Moshe. And what did Moshe say? So I'm going to fill in potential blanks. Shemesh Bisinai Dom Vyareach Birfidim. Maybe find another piece to make it work in there for the geography. That's all Moshe's song. Who's, what's the Nekama from whom? Amalek. Why? Because they attacked us. In the case of Amalek, it really is Nekama. They've already attacked us. We're fighting back. That's the original song. What part does Yoshua switch? The location. It becomes Givon and Emekayalon. And it works very well because, of course, they're in Givon. From Givon, you could see Emekai alone. But it's midday. Parent, there's a parenthetic note that Yoshua puts in. That's not part of Moshe's song. Because what's it telling us? This is a song that's already earlier. Meaning, it's already written about earlier. Not the song, the event. Sefer Hayashar, Sefer Torah. And now we're told what really happens. The sun actually in this event stays up on top. That's the event that took place here. So question one. Where's the sun? The sun's up on top. The earlier song, the sun was like this, and the moon like this. Okay, careful, I can start a new religion. But sun over here, moon over here. I'm alive, so it's okay. Um, second problem. What's the Nekama? The Nekama is part of the original song, the Nekama from, from Amalek. What's the mention of Sefer Ashar? Because this event is mentioned in Sefer Ashar. It's in Sefer, in Parshat B'Shalach, in Sefer Shmot. Hayashar could be a definition of the Sefer. It could also be Sefer Ashar means, that's Sefer Shalmosh Rabbeinu. My Rabbi. Shoshua talking. Is Yoshua praising Moshe? Even this great day, there still was no day greater than that day. The day that I earned my marks as the fighter and the day that Moshe Rabbeinu stopped the sun. What we took a look at over the course of the last hour plus was a passage in Yosef Yoshua. Took a look at some of the problems. Went over the four different challenges we just reviewed. And I moved us towards a whole different passage in Sefer Shmuel about the girl's song and Shaul's reaction. We then talked about general significance 
of gaining as broad an understanding of the world in which these events are taking place. So we be able to understand references, names, customs, social behavior, whatever it may be, transactions. Sometimes the text gives it to us and sometimes we have to get it from the outside. Sometimes we have to even have to use our imagination or put ourselves into the story to try to figure what's going on. What does this person know? What does that person know? We also have to be aware how much of it is concrete and how much of it is imagined and, and, and proceed carefully. I had suggested that there are all sorts of templates of songs, some created in Tanakh, some borrowed in Tanakh, that we have. And that, that was our solution to the song of the girls coming back from the war. Greeting Shaul and David, and the reason that Shaul was so enraged is because he got the thousand slot, which is the lower slot, the not like. But took that back and said, perhaps that's what's going on in the case of Yoshua. Shemesh Begivondom Be'erech Be'emakayalon was really a song that was originally sung by his Rebbe when he was on the battlefield for the first time. I have an unusual uh, bracha here. It's called Five Minutes. You're lucky because I usually don't bring a watch and it usually ends up being late. So, I honestly believe that that is Pshutosh Mikra. In the case of Shemesh Vigimondom and in the case of Shaul. I'd like to suggest a whole different piece that ranges somewhere between interesting and cute. Hopefully it's not less than cute. Of understanding this mention of Halohichtuval Sefer Yashar. This is a new five minute piece. New meaning separate from what we've done. I want to take you back to Yoshua's ancestor. Who is Yoshua's ancestor? Prime, which means? Yosef. Yosef. Very good. Yosef had two dreams. What are the two dreams? The grain. Now the grain dream. Did the grain dream come true? Because remember, dreams speak in symbolic language. And if the grain's bowing down, that means that the family is subservient to Yosef for sustenance. It exactly played out. What about the second dream? What was that about? The second dream was not about material sustenance, but about spiritual sustenance. Because Amisrael compared to sand, Amisrael compared to stars. Having 11 stars bow to Yosef, and remember, he's not a star, he's just Yosef in the dream, means they're, respon- they're, they're dependent on him for their spiritual success. Which he ensures by when they come to Egypt, having them live separately. Having them present themselves to Paro as shepherds, which means they're immediately put to the back of the bus. Or even a different bus, a better bus, but just not our bus. Live somewhere else. He succeeds in that. But he cannot fully succeed because there is no way for Am Yisrael to reach its spiritual perfection and potential in Mitzrayim or anywhere else with Kutzlarz. So Yosef's ultimate job in history is to bring the family back. He can't do it. For whatever reasons, he can't do it. And so what does he make his brothers swear on his deathbed? That he's going to take his bones back with him. That's a very interesting thing about, about Yosef. Everybody who dies in Tanakh who's important, usually we find out how long they lived. Get a lifespan. Everyone's 175, so 127. And we're given it once. Once and once alone. Even Moshe Rabbeinu, we're told he lived 120. He himself says 
Ben Meyav Yasim Shana Anochi Ayom, but that's his, that's his own speech. But in the narrative, we're only given that age once. Except there's one exception, that's Yosef. How old was Yosef when he died? 110. How old was Yosef when he died? 110. It says it twice at the end of Breshit. Ben Meyav Yasim in the last Pasuk and about five Pasukim earlier. Why? What's the text saying here? Ben Meyav Yasim I think the text is saying that Yosef did not finish his job. And his job is going to be finished by somebody who will also live 110 years. So keep an eye out for that number. Yosef has a descendant by the name of Yoshua. And Yoshua is the one who finishes the job. And Yoshua is the one who brings us home, which explains something else odd in Sefer Yoshua. We were told to bring Yosef's bones back and to bury him. When should we have buried him? When should we have reinterred him? As soon as we get in. When is he reinterred? After Yoshua dies. It's the second to last pasuk in Sefer Yoshua. After Yoshua dies and he's buried with Timnat Cheres, with Timnat Serach, then Yosef's bones are reinterred. Now, I don't know when it happened, but that's when the pasuk puts it. Why? Because they're keeping Yosef's bones around because we're still doing his job. Until I breathe my last breath, I'm fulfilling his job. After Yeshua dies, then Yosef can be reinterred. Right? Correct. He does as much as he can. That's all we can ask of him. Then we have Sefer Shoftim, which is backsliding. Agreed. So now you take a look at the Pasuk. Shemesh b'givon dom v'yerech b'yemek ha'yalon sefer ha'yashar. What's Sefer ha'yashar? Chazal says a Sefer Bereshit. Where does it say in Sefer Breshit? Shemesh b'givondom v'yerach b'yamakayalon? Hena ha-shemesh v'hayareach v'achar asar kochavim ishtachavim li. Enjoy the rest of the Yemei'iyun.